I love to worship. And when I say that, I mean I love to take part in corporate sung worship. So long as I actually know the hymn or song, and most other people do too, I love to worship in whatever way is open to me, whether formally, in a more traditional setting like by organ music, or less formal, with guitars and drums. I particularly love to worship right here at the Kingdom Vineyard, and I miss baby worship along the way. God has blessed us with wonderful sun worship in this church, and I am so grateful for it. There is method in the way we do worship in the vineyard. John Wimber, who founded the vineyard movement, was a very accomplished and at one time a professional musician. He sought to write simple songs which express intimacy with God, where we sing to God instead of about him, which draw us closer to him, and which lead to a better understanding of what it means when we talk about God's presence. And it is God's presence that I want to talk about today. A couple of weeks ago, I came to church distracted, and if I'm ruthlessly honest, grumpy. I could at this point be entirely disingenuous and say that I'm sure that never happens to any of you, but of course I would be lying. I know this perfectly well because most of us, at least, are human. The second reason that I know this is that those of us who are Christians are told in the Bible, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, that we have an enemy, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion, it says, looking for someone to devour. It seems to me that he's always particularly hungry on Sunday mornings. Being with God's people, worshipping God together, learning more about who he is and our relationship to him, and then praying for one another, strengthens each of us in a way which makes us less susceptible to that enemy. No wonder he redoubles his efforts to derail us. Anyway, he was having a field day with me that day, and two songs we sang particularly gave him pause. We sang one of them again this morning. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Your glory, Lord, is what our hearts long for, to be overcome by your presence, Lord. And earlier in the verse, the words say, no thing can compare. You are a living hope. The next song we sang that day is exactly the one I hoped and prayed you would sing, in spite of being one. This happens to be routine. A song comes to mind and I find myself really wanting to sing it. And then it's in the worship leader's chosen set. This is what my husband would call a God incident. It always feels like a special gift from God to me. On this particular Sunday, the song was The Air I Breathe. And those of you who are familiar with the song will know that one of the lines of the chorus is simply this. I'm desperate for you. That morning, I found myself thinking, really? Am I really desperate for you, Lord? Do I really believe that no thing can come close? Do I honestly long for your presence in the way I'm telling you in this song that I do? So what is God's presence? Do I really find rest for my soul in the glory of it, as I assure him I do when I sing the air I breathe? 
and how much is being and remaining in God's presence is up to God, and how much up to us. The first thing I want to say quite clearly is that these questions do not indicate a struggle with faith. I'm not having a crisis of faith. I absolutely believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on the cross so that I could enjoy an eternal relationship with God. This relationship would not be an option for me without Jesus' sacrifice and my acknowledgement of it. Jesus' death on the cross means that he took the entire weight of my sin on his shoulders. His sacrifice, made the agony that really means, means that my debt to God will be paid in full forever. If you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, regardless of who anybody else says he is, then the same applies to you. So these questions don't have to do with doubt. They have to do with self-assessment and accountability. They have to do with being honest with the Lord and with ourselves. So let's kick off by saying what God's presence isn't. It isn't about how we feel at any given time. When we're happy and full of the joys of spring, when we're abandoned in worship, when everything is going well, God is no more present than when the opposite is the case. When we're low, when we're ill, when we've been hurt, betrayed, are bankrupt financially or emotionally or in any way, God is still present. In Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, Moses says to Israel, Do not be afraid or terrified because of you have their enemy. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. This verse is quoted again in Hebrews 13, verse 5 where in context it is actually said with reference to financial security. The verse reads, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake There is a great deal in the Psalms in particular about feeling forsaken. I'm sure there is not a single Christian on the planet who has not at some time felt forsaken. But this is where our will must come into play. God has said he will never leave us and forsake us. We may sense his presence, we may not. But he says he will always be there. So as far as I can see, the choice is ours as to whether we believe him or not. We sometimes put far too much store on how we feel. If that bit choosing to believe God's word rather than what we feel is up to us, what then is up to God? Well, according to John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, God has done the following. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's God's bit. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. That's our point. So point one, God has given us Jesus, and through Jesus, the possibility of an eternal relationship with God. According to John chapter 14, verses 16 to 17, God has done the following. 
I will answer the Father, Jesus says, and he will give you another advocate, like you, and he will give forever the spirit of truth. Later in verse 23, Jesus says, anybody who loves me will obey my teaching. However, he goes on, my father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. So point two, God has given us his Holy Spirit and through the Holy Spirit a chance to be in God's presence always, not only after we die, but right now. God loves us. He says he will never leave us or forsake us. That is not supposed to be a threat. I will forever. It's a promise. Who here knows who Don Francisco is? Um, I would say that that dates you, but there are a couple of younger people who know who he is, so all credit to you. I think you've brought up their Christian parents if you want. Don Francisco is an American gospel singer who was particularly successful in the 1780s and died came to faith. He wrote a song, well, many songs, but he wrote a song called I'll Never Let Go of Your Hand, which was partly responsible for dragging me back from the brink of kicking everything to do with faith and with Jesus into permanent touch. I suppose it would be described as cheesy now. But I believe the Lord used it to turn my life around, and so I will always love it. There are a couple of lines that which help me to understand better the true nature of God. I wish you knew how much I long for you to understand, no matter what may happen, child, I will never let go of your hand. And later, I'll be with you everywhere, in everything you do. <coughs> and even if you do it wrong, and miss the joy I have found, I will never, never let go of your hand. Look it up, it's on YouTube. The point is, as Romans 8 makes so clear, God's presence is with us, not just when we're doing well, but when we're doing really badly. Verse 31 onwards says this, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, Christ Paul, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he doesn't walk off in disgust. We grieve him on occasion, certainly, but he never stops loving us, just as those of us who are parents never stop loving our children, even at the worst of times. This is the loving 
generous Father, we have access to you through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. Of course, there's more. God doesn't sit with his arms folded saying, Well, I've done all that, I'm spent, now it's all up to you. His grace to us is unending. Even when we're not in the best frame of mind, he wants to be with us. Even when we are at our lowest ebb and can, and we do sense and experience his Holy Spirit's presence in the world. We've been given a gift, the most valuable and precious gift God could ever give us in Jesus and his Holy Spirit. We now have to decide if it is a gift we want to avail ourselves of 24 7, or a couple of times a week, high days and holidays, and we remember, or not at all. The gift analogy only goes so far, because actually what we've been offered is a relationship with a person. And if we're going to have a relationship with someone, we actually have to work and build it. We have to talk to the person. We have to listen to the person. We have to strive to understand the person and not make assumptions and cut them some slack if they mess up and bless them and be prepared to apologize to them when they're wrong and forgive them when they are. It's all incredibly hard work if you're in it for the long haul. So the first thing we need to do is to decide if we're in the business of learning to be in God's presence for the long haul. If the answer to that is please. And here are three things you will need if we want to strengthen our understanding and our sense of the presence of God. Firstly, we will need persistence. Hebrews 12 verses 1 to 3 says, let us run the race with perseverance. Sorry, let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This engagement with the presence of God is a marriage. Secondly, we need patience, because learning to live in God's presence is not easy and is not fun in a day. And thirdly, we need discipline. Persistence, patience, discipline. If for you, as for me, none of that makes your heart sing, the following might help. Cultivate thankfulness. We need to cultivate the art of thankfulness. We bang on about this incessant idea I know. But speaking personally, I am shocked at how much easier it is for me to complain about things than it is to be thankful about things. Let's try writing down in a journal or a diary or on a piece of scrap paper or on the phone five things every day of which we are thankful. Five different things. If you have to think about it, you really need to practice. Five is not that many. Two, you need to praise Him. It is, of course, perfectly possible to worship God on your own. But we are told in the Bible not to neglect gathering together, Hebrews 10, verse 25. So let's not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, Romans 12, 3, and make sure we go to church. It's true that God will not love us any less if we don't. But 
But if we do, and if we seriously engage with God, and if we have the humility to accept that his understanding just might be greater than ours, then why not have a bunch of the ambassadors? Why, when it comes down to it, will we think we're any different? And then why not? Earlier, I mentioned how much I love corporate church worship. Worshiping God with other people is a privilege. The job of the worship leaders, at least in this church, is to lead us into the conscious presence of God. Occasionally, I've come in here and wept all the way through some worship, usually because I've come into church feeling deflated, bereft, sometimes cross, but I've never yet failed to come into God's presence. More often, and for this I'm very thankful, I just delight to be in his presence. And sometimes, as was the case a couple of weeks ago, I am challenged by God to check my spiritual thermometer and just see if what I'm saying matches up with what I'm feeling. If it doesn't, do I just stop singing because I don't feel those things to be true at this Or do I take authority over my thoughts and feelings and submit them to God's fortune? The third thing is come clean. Confession, in other words. One drum, one line. Hands up if you already know what this verse is. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You know, let's do it. It is okay to come into God's presence, hard, grumpy, resentful, and unforgiving. But it is not okay to stay that way, especially if we really want to experience his presence, to feel his presence. If we want to isolate ourselves from him by clinging to things that aren't, of course we can do that. But let's not accuse God of being absent when it is we who have isolated ourselves. That's just silly. Come as you are, don't necessarily. We need to practice exercising sober judgment with ourselves, not excusing our sin and wallowing in self justification, but confessing our sin. I behave badly. I'm really sorry. Please forgive me. In my experience, it's often when you can't stop. So, cultivate thankfulness, praise Him, come clean, and fourthly, read the Bible. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges and attitudes of the heart. Sometimes we just cannot go on holding on to things we think if we just read the Bible. I read somewhere that a cricket heart is better than a dull heart. And I agree. I mentioned earlier how God will draw us close and bless us with his presence even when we aren't looking for it or actively want it. Many years ago, I was a very new Christian and I was at a Bible school. Everybody was annoyed. Everybody was self-righteous. Nobody had a sense of humor. Everybody was a waste of space. We read the Bible and studied, and now we were going around in a circle saying that we wanted prayer for us. All I wanted was 
not to be there. <laughs> and I could see it getting closer and closer to me. It was all excruciating. It got to me and I just blurted out that I had a heart of stone and I wanted God to give me a heart of flesh. At that point, one guy just said, you certainly pray. But God had already given me a heart of flesh because I could never have asked for what I asked for without him. A pricked heart is better than a dull Whatever I was feeling, I suppose the least that can be said for me is that I had put myself in God's presence. That was another progress point for me, along with the I'll never let go of your hand thing, which in fact the same guy had played to me. So in spite of this being annoying, self righteous, a waste of space, and devoid of a sense of humour, I married him. <laughs> <laughs> does not with me differ from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were on my knees at the house itself. I recommend it to you, and I would ask you to read it not as Brother Lawrence being somewhat otherworldly from us, setting an impossible standard which we lesser mortals will never attain. But as an encouragement to persevere and to do so with patience and discipline, we need to practice sensing the presence of God. It takes time. Now there are a couple of books I've got in the bag somewhere. Devotional classics. I mean, you can see that you'll be able to find Brother Lawrence online, I'm sure. And this is fantastic because it um, takes from the writings of all sorts of people through the centuries and gives you a far broader view of uh, what people have thought and how they developed and so forth. And then there's another one which is also extracts Christian classics, collection, collection. I just think that sometimes it's quite helpful to be presented with a point of view that you're not presented with every day. God manifested himself in various ways in the Bible. In Exodus, we saw that he was present constantly with his people, um, Israel, as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and for Elijah in 1 Kings, God is a still, small voice. There are so many examples. God is not confined to being any one thing or behaving in any one way. And we make a mistake if we try either to confine or define him. He promises us to be as present when two or three are gathered together as he is in exuberant and joyful worship. 
We can sense his presence when you walk along the beach quite as much as when you're in a cathedral built specifically to his glory. He is as present in the ordinary as he is in the extraordinary. I think we're just somehow more impressed by the spectacle of a peacock, for example, than we are when we do it to the sparrow. Maybe we shouldn't be. To sum up, God is always present. He has promised he will never be absent. We can get better at sensing his presence with practice. We can make an effort to do the things we know will help. We can practice being thankful. We can worship him in the company of his people. We can come clean and keep short accounts with him and with others. We can study his work. We can decide not to neglect meeting together. We can persevere, which is always easier to do than attending the others. There is a fantastic scene in an old 80s film called Officer and a Gentleman, in which a brash and arrogant Richard Gere forgoes the top of his class rating in grueling obstacles in order to go back and encourage the woman in his squad. Without his intervention, delivered with much swearing and yelling, she would have failed to complete the course and would have been kicked off after the training. She makes it much cheerier. I love that scene. We need to remember. We're not supposed to do it. I want to end with the words of an American vineyard pastor called Frank DeCenzo, of whom I have never heard, but who's right on the discovered online and who conveys perfectly and succinctly what I've been trying to say this morning. He writes this Understanding our acceptance by God because of the blood of Jesus, being aware of God's universal and indwelling presence, actively seeking his manifest presence, and being alert to the varying unveilings of himself to us will help us experience more of God more frequently. Amen to that.